good morning, everybody. You don't know how long I've waited just to do that, to say good morning, everybody, and hear people say it back. Good morning to everybody online as well, and it is good to be here together, but we have sung, we've had the opportunity to worship. Let's pray together on this Good Friday morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to sing about the mighty cross. Thank you for this opportunity to turn our eyes upon Jesus. Father, I pray right now that those of us that are gathered here at the church physically, those that are gathering online, church family, extended family, friends, visitors, maybe even strangers that have just wandered across one of the links, I just pray that right now we can be still and know that you are God. I pray that we can also be excited that in the midst of a global pandemic, as we gather here, this little church called Calvary Baptist Church on this island of Newfoundland and Labrador in this city of St. John's, and Lord, before this service started, another little church in a neighborhood called Kilbride had their good Friday morning service, and so I thank you. Thank you for those that gathered And Lord, I pray that you would raise up a church, save men and women, give people hope in the midst of struggle, not only in Kilbride, but in multiple neighborhoods across this city. And Lord, I pray not only for Calvary Baptist, I pray for other churches in this city that are gathering right now. Lord, I pray for the Church of Canada, the Church of North America the church around the world. And Lord, as we now still our souls, may we indeed be still and know that you are God. Father, may the authority of Scripture taken from this prophet of yours called Isaiah, when he spoke these words on your behalf to a nation of Israel that was in doubt and turmoil, that wondered about your power, were struggling about how to live out the realities of their relationship with you, And over 3,000 years later, it's no different than 2021. So from the youngest to the oldest, Lord, no matter how we find ourselves, where we find ourselves, whether we're frustrated or angry, searching, heartbroken, whether we're mourning, Father, whether we're trying to find expression for our praise or our tears, I pray that we would know that our God lives, that Jesus reigns, and that, Father, I would pray that you would take me and us on a journey now as we discover why Good Friday is good, and may it change my life and change ours. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's good to be here with you this morning, and if you've got a Bible, I want to encourage you to go to Isaiah chapter 52 with me this morning. Isaiah 52, I'm going to read the last of Isaiah 52 and all of Isaiah 53. Here we are. It's a year later. We went into lockdown a little over a year ago, March 15th of 2020. Easter of 2020 was exclusively online. A year ago, during this time, We were in a little 20 by 24 room on Kenmount Road with one camera, nobody else there in the room, just yourself looking at a green dot. And here we are a year later when we thought it was going to be maybe way different. We thought maybe we were going to have a packed church and we would have no masks, but here we are. At least we have our 50. When we think about many provinces in Canada right now cannot gather in any way, shape, or form. So it is good to have you here And it is great to have everybody online. But I want to ask this question or ask you, do you really think that Good Friday is really good? And my proposition is that Good Friday is really good. And I want us to look at that this morning. But I want to be honest. We've got young people, older people, everybody in between people, all kinds of people online watching. And what do you think of when you hear this expression, Good Friday. I'm finding as I get older that often we have traditions, we have things that we assume, things that we say, and we all kind of nod in assent, but 
you never really take the time to evaluate what you believe or why you believe it or how does it count or even make a difference. We say all kinds of things. And so we have this Good Friday. And I don't know about you, but I think this expression can seem like an oxymoron. Because Jesus dies on Friday. Jesus is betrayed. He's broken and beaten and blasphemed. All the while, he's being accused of being a blasphemer. In fact, if you look at it at face value in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you could honestly make the case and say there's nothing good about Good Friday. Jesus suffers and then he dies. And yet we call it good. And that's hilarious to me because if I were to talk to each of you personally and ask you about suffering, none of us likes it. In fact, the idea of suffering in the world seems foreign to us, strange to us. We actually realize that something is wrong with the world because there's suffering in it. And yet, if you read Isaiah chapter 52, 13, all the way to the end of 53, you'll notice that God, through his prophet Isaiah, as I prayed over 3,000 years ago, is telling this little nation called Israel, and 3,000 years later, telling you and I, that here's the story. God sent Jesus to do exactly this, to suffer. And in fact, I would submit to you that Jesus would suffer successfully, and he would suffer successfully with such sufficient significance as the servant of the Lord that the gospel answers man's greatest need and question. Because I think this is one of the great questions of humanity. Especially those of you that maybe are curious about Christianity or religion. You're wondering what your life is all about. Everybody is kind of asking, how does a holy, glorious God, how does a perfect God give and keep and fulfill the promises of amazing grace to a guilty people? I mean, let's be honest. How can God come to people who deserve wrath? who deserve judgment, who deserve rejection. If I could boil it down to maybe a greater question, I think the ultimate question of 2021 is how can God love me? Am I lovable? How can, will God love me? And are you ready? On this Good Friday, the answer is the victorious suffering of Jesus, our victorious Savior, means the answer is Yes, God can and will love you. Now, we again, we are wrapped up in our traditions. There's a great tradition in Newfoundland. I'm sure it's also a tradition across our country. Many of you are going to eat fish today, me included. I can't wait. After this service, I'm going to have me a feed of fish, all right? We do all kinds of things. Many of you maybe already have or plan today, since it's Good Friday, to watch The Passion of the Christ. I'm sure that's going to play either on streaming services or on television, probably multiple times over the next three days. For some reason, we think we need to be sober and somber. It's almost as if we're driven as a culture to reenact the crucifixion all over again. In fact, in different places of the world, they will. They'll actually reenact the crucifixion. And I have to be honest... As someone, when I look down and see some of the young people here, and I've been around Christianity most of my life, I've often wondered why we seem to have this need to almost whip ourselves on Good Friday. Because as human beings, we seem to have a fascination with suffering, don't we? Have you ever watched people on the scene of an accident and how slowly cars go by and you just can't help yourself but stare and wonder and look at all of what's happening there? In fact, I was watching a reality show last night about uh, the highway, the 401 highway, and the policemen were being interviewed and they were saying how much it actually creates problems that all the traffic wants to slow down and stare at accidents. How do we watch the news? We're glued to it whenever we hear that something tragic is happening. We talk all the time about the bad things that happen. And then think about us as a people here over the last 16 to 17 months where we've seen literally hundreds of thousands of people die to one virus, let alone all of the other 
hundreds of thousands that have died this past year. And we are a people who mourned. My wife and I lost a family friend this past week. In fact, we lost two. And you want to comfort. You want to comfort family. It's the first time in a while for me that I heard my mom cry on a phone. And I wanted to be there with her. I wanted to hold her. Why? Because we don't like suffering. Why are we mournful and wanting to comfort people? And I often wonder, is it because there's some sense by which we feel guilt? Or there's some insistence to remember the sufferings of Jesus on Friday. Is there some sense in which we think, I need to feel bad for what Jesus experienced and did for me or what happened to him? Perhaps there's another reason that we miss the power and actually the victory of Good Friday is let me talk to you as parents. Those of you that are around Christianity or would say, I'm a Christian and you raise your kids around Christianity. Have you ever thought about how you talk about your Bible to your kids? Think about this, especially as you as young people, think about how mom and dad or Sunday school teachers or even at church, how often do we tell our kids about the Bible? How do we describe Christmas versus Easter? How much more have you talked to your kids about Christmas than Easter? How do you talk about people being raised from the dead or the feeding of the 5,000 or the lame that are made to walk or the widow that's fed or cared for? But on this day... On April the 2nd of 2021, when we are a little over a year into a pandemic, when our lives are nowhere back to normal, and maybe we thought they would be, how do you talk about verses like Romans chapter 4, verse 5? When Paul tells us that God justifies the ungodly. Moms and dads, have you talked to your kids about that? See, we love the idea in the Bible, right, of Jesus walking on the water, of Jesus calming the seas, or a blind man getting his sight back. But again, why? Why do we like those miracles? And how often, what's the balance by which we talk to each other about all the good things in the Bible than about Easter? You see, I wonder, it's because from our perspective... In all the miracles of the Bible, it doesn't seem like anybody gets hurt and everybody's happy. It's exactly how you would construct a movie. And they all lived happily ever after, the end. But if Jesus is going to justify sinners, if we are going to say that God justifies ungodly people, now we've got an issue. Because this kind of runs against our morality. We don't want guilty people to get off. And what's worse, your pride gets into the way because we don't want to say, I'm ungodly and I need grace. So have you ever noticed that? Just in family dynamics, in church dynamics of Sunday school and youth group, how often we talk about all the good miracles, but how often do we actually focus on the greatest miracle of all? Jesus suffering and dying on the cross. J.N. Oswald once wrote this, God's power is at its greatest not in his destruction of the wicked, but in his taking all the wickedness of the earth into himself and giving the world back love. So this Good Friday, when we're nowhere near the crowd we'd like to be, when so many of you were still tuning in online and never thought this would be our reality over a year later, I want to invite you to come along. I want to read Isaiah 52, 13 to the end of 53. And I don't want us to miss the most outrageous miracle right in the center of the gospel. One of my pastoral heroes, Ray Ortland, says this. Everybody knows that God punishes bad people and he rewards good people. I mean, after all, it's his job. But the gospel disagrees. The gospel says that God justifies the ungodly. Now, let's be honest. What does that mean? Because so many of you, I'm looking at very familiar faces. And many of you would go, all right, Steve, way to go, Captain Obvious. God justifies the ungodly. I agree. All right, well, what do we mean? If you were going to explain it to somebody in a 21st century world, what does it mean that God declares people innocent? It means that God treats bad people as if they were good people. And it goes beyond the power of a miracle. That's scandalous. 
So are you and I, are we online, are we open to this mega miracle, this arch scandal of the gospel? Because it doesn't matter if you're a conservative person or a progressive person or a liberal person. It doesn't matter if you're woke or unwoke. It doesn't matter if you're a social justice warrior. It doesn't matter how you define whether virtue or vice. It doesn't matter what you have as a sense of right and wrong. You form judgments. You expect God to. But how can God justify the ungodly? Now hear me. Every one of you in the quietness of this room, we, you and me, we need this gospel. On this Good Friday, you need to know that we needed God to offer Jesus. And you need to know why. Because every one of us is ungodly. And I would submit that every one of us knows it. We know it. We failed people. And we failed to be the people we ought to be. Again, my friend Ray Ortland says, A deep unease about ourselves is why we actually live in denial. Have you ever thought about why you do what you do? So many of you live your life and you don't stop to go, why do I want what I want? Why do I react the way I do? Why do I have a struggle with this? Why am I struggling with that? We discover early in life that this self-excusing is something we both hate and yet do. You hate it when a politician does it, right? How about that, that finance minister in Ontario when he was telling everybody to stay at home and then we discovered that he was down in the Caribbean and was so sneaky he was taking pictures with a green screen to try and f- fool everybody? All oh, the outrage. Oh, we hated that. And yet we do it ourselves. You see, cover-up is a self-righteous strategy of every guilty conscience. By the way, that's why we blame others. Finger pointing is one of our favorite things to do. It's not my fault. I wouldn't have done it if it wasn't for this. If you didn't do this, I wouldn't get angry. But what lies behind that? But a troubled conscience. And you may blame it on culture. You may blame it on your parents. You may blame it on your youth. You may blame it on your school. But if you want me to prove this, The next time you have a fight with your spouse, your roommate, your sibling, ask yourself this question. Why are you so fiercely passionate to be right? Why do you need to be right? I would submit, and the Bible says, maybe it's because you're not sure you really are. Maybe it's because you need reassurance You see, the reason why we shift the blame, the reason why our problems are always somebody else's fault, the reason why parents blame their kids and husbands blame their wives and so on and so forth, the reason we continuously pass the buck is because we're terrified that we can't actually handle our own guilt. It scares us. We want so desperately for someone to bear our troubles with us. And so what do we do? We dump it on them without even noticing what's happening in our thoughts. This is the source of all of the tension in our homes and our workplaces, and dare I say, in our churches. Many of you already here know that my, one of my favorite, if not in, definitely in my top five movies, now you may hate me after I say this, is National Treasure. I love that movie. I really, really do. I've can watch it over and over again. But my favorite part in the movie National Treasure is when the main character, Ben Yates, has finally discovered the national treasure. Now, according to the movie, he has discovered the greatest treasure in the history of the world. But to discover it, he's broken all kinds of laws. He is a criminal. He's a wanted man. He's now come up out of the bowels of this basement He's up in the church and the FBI has finally caught up with him and he's caught and now he's negotiating how he can let them know where the treasure is but what's going to happen to him. And one of my favorite parts in this movie is when he's sitting there on the altar of this church and he's looking at the FBI agent and he says, I'd really like not to go to jail. To which the FBI agent says, Ben, someone always has to go to jail. What is this FBI agent actually saying? And what does Ben Yates actually need? 
Are you ready? A scapegoat. That's what he needs. The Bible, the gospel in Jesus, Jesus is telling you and I on this Good Friday, I am your scapegoat. In fact, I'm the scapegoat of the world. Jesus Christ in his own words says, at my cross, this is my business. I have come to be crushed under the unbearable guilt of everybody. Jesus says, it's my role to bear away other people's guilt. It's what I do because I love guilty people. So this Good Friday, Jesus says, if you'll trust me, here's the deal. Here's the deal. I will give you all my guilt, which is nothing. And he says, you give me all your righteousness, which is nothing. And and then he says, how about that? Is that a good arrangement? I'll give you all my guilt. You give me all your righteousness. You and I know what he's really saying is, I'll give you all my righteousness. You give me all your guilt. And that's why one commentator says, Good Friday is this redemptive release. It's the miracle and scandal that God justifies ungodly people through the finished work of Christ on the cross. God accepts unacceptable people. God honors shameful people. God treats fools and harlots with royal dignity. Remember when Paul preached about that? Back when he talked about that Rahab the harlot becomes a princess. All right? That's how God our judge becomes God our justifier. And if God forgives you, can I ask, isn't that enough? So the only barrier to being washed, fresh, and joyful is to cling to Jesus Christ and give him our guilt. See, all our guilt must go to Christ All our righteousness must come from Christ. This is God's way of releasing guilty people. And there is no other way. So on this, this good Friday, it's why it's good. And let's look at our passage. Let's look at Isaiah 52 verse 13. All right. Isaiah the prophet says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now watch this. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. For that which had not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. I want you to realize very quickly this morning the success of of Jesus, the suffering servant. Are you ready for this? On Good Friday morning, his appearance was repulsive. But it was redemptive. His appearance was repulsive, but it was redemptive. Look at it again. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now, wait a second. That isn't the language you'd associate with all the suffering and agony of Good Friday, is it? That sounds like someone's talking about a coronation day. That's how we might think of, you know, if, if the Queen of, of England passed away and, and all of a sudden Charles said, no, I'm not going to take the throne. I want, I want William because William is the real popular one. And if William was going to ascend to the throne, this is the kind of word you would read, wouldn't it? Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and be exalted. And yet here's Isaiah talking about Jesus dying on the cross. Jesus suffers in prayer. Now, I want you to realize this, okay? I want you to take the time. The reason why the Passion of the Cross, I think, is so fascinating to us as a movie is because it's probably the only movie made where you actually get the graphic understanding of all that Jesus went through in his humanity. Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane shortly after midnight, and he suffers in prayer. Sweating, as it were, drops of blood, Dr. Luke tells us, for hours. And the whole time he's doing it, Peter, James, and John can't help but sleep. Judas shows up somewhere likely between 2.30 in the morning and 4.30 in the morning with his makeshift guard. He betrays Jesus with a kiss. They arrest him. 
and they drag him off to Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest, who is basically, many people think, the actual guy with the power, that Caiaphas, his son-in-law, is really a puppet master, so to speak, or that Annas is the puppet master. And other than the cover of darkness in this informal herring, likely to figure out what they're going to do with Jesus and how they're going to do it. And by the time you get to that point, Jesus has been awake for over 30 hours. No sleep for 30 hours. Next, Peter will deny Jesus. All of the other disciples will flee from him except for John. And the sun comes up on Friday morning and we have another trial where Christ is now brought before all of the Jewish leaders and now they decide that he's guilty and they're going to send him to Pilate to be condemned to death. Along the way, Judas is now overcome with guilt and shame. He tries to return his bribe money. He flicks it away and in pure despair takes his own life. Pilate then questions Jesus and sends him to Herod Antipas, another puppet king under Rome for the nation of Israel, who then, after having fun with him, sends him back to Pilate. And along the way, they harass Jesus and mock him. Now there's another criminal child before Pilate, and then comes the condemnation, and then the beating. And Jesus is mocked, and now he's paraded off to Golgotha, and he's so weary from the beating, he's so weak and, well, physically unable, he falls underneath the weight of his own cross, and the Roman soldiers conscript a guy named Simon to help carry his cross. He's condemned to death. He's stripped of all of his human dignity. He's crowned with thorns and spit upon, and then he suffers slowly a painful death of crucifixion. Are you ready from this? From 9 a.m. in the morning to 3 p.m. in the afternoon. He's crucified between two thieves. A makeshift sign of mockery and contempt is posted above him. And once again, he's mocked and scorned again as he suffers those last few hours of his life before his mother naked. And he finally yells out, it is finished. And he lays his life down for God's glory and our, our, uh, our salvation. And are you ready for this? According to Isaiah 52, 13 to 15, that is the essence of success. Look at those verses again, 14 and 15. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Basically, Isaiah is saying he's unrecognizable as a human being. And yet it says, he shall sprinkle many nations. What's what's Isaiah doing? In essence, the prophet is telling us The more Jesus suffers, the more successful he is at making us holy like he's holy. Now, now think about that. Do you really think anybody on crucifixion day, anyone was wondering, I I wonder if this guy is actually the servant of the Lord. Can you imagine what Jesus looked like after this kind of beating? I actually think even the religious leaders that wanted him dead, as they saw him suffer there, finally thought, enough. 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 End his suffering. Is it any wonder that that Roman sojourian would say in Matthew 27, truly this was the Son of God. But our passage says, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Now I want you to get this because this is one of the beauties of Easter that often you don't get. Do you realize what's going on here? In Israel's day, when Isaiah says this, when the people of Israel heard this term, he will sprinkle many nations. They instantly knew what what he was talking about. You and I often don't. So in Israel, when you were sick, and one of the most uh, rampant diseases of Israel's day was this disease called leprosy, something that you and I don't deal with many days. It was a skin condition that made you look nasty. Just think about this, all right? In our world over the last year, if you knew somebody had COVID, how would you treat them? Why do we have two weeks of quarantine and isolation and all these words, all this thing, right? We're trying to protect the population. If you had leprosy, they put you in leper colonies. You were unclean. But if by some miracle you healed, you had to go present yourself to a priest And the way the priest would let the rest of the world know, the nation of Israel know, that you were clean or that you were healed, is the priest sprinkled you with blood. Then you could go back into society. 
So here's the prophet saying this. He's saying, this is what Jesus does. Jesus does this with moral lepers, sinners. In the Passover, on the Day of Atonement, a priest would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat of the holiest of holies. That would declare Israel clean for a year. And so here is Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, pouring out His blood. And not only is He our sacrifice, He's our priest. Because Jesus can do all this and He never becomes dirty. If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he touched lepers, and they were healed, and he never got dirty. And that's why the preacher of Hebrews said, who for the joy that was set before him in Hebrews chapter 12, Jesus does this. He cleanses the very ones who are dehumanizing him. This is the wisdom of God. The undeserved suffering of Jesus Christ outperforms any of your best efforts And by the way, Calvary Baptist, this is why I love what one pastor says. The mission of the church, we don't need to offer the world a new Christianity. We need to tell them this good news because this is good news they've never heard before. This is good news that is absolutely almost unbelievable that a holy God would come to an unholy people and love them enough to die for them and declare them holy. This whole passage puts a whole bunch of importance on Jesus' physical appearance. And the young people that are here in the room with me, I don't think I've got to convince you about the priority our culture puts on physical appearance. Jesus was extraordinarily ordinary. He wouldn't have ever made the cover of Vogue People magazine would never have said he's one of the sexiest men of life. He would never have gotten on the CrossFit magazine covers. He was hopelessly normal. And on Good Friday, he was so beaten, he didn't even look human. But the attractiveness of the power of Jesus didn't come from beauty or strength. And I want to ask you here on Good Friday of 2021, can you feel the tender gentleness of the Messiah, your Messiah? You see, we have an expression in our world, right? He wouldn't hurt a fly. That's how gentle Jesus is. Is it no wonder that crowds followed him? This gentle Messiah was approachable. Little children would run to him. Outcasts and lame and sick and lepers all flocked to him. And when they came, he ministered to them. So Calvary Baptist, both here and online, can I ask, will people come to us? Will people feel safe to come to us with all of their mess and their junk, their struggles? And when they do come to us, would they feel safe enough to know that if they came, we'll minister to them? Because we're not better, but we know a great Savior. From the youngest of you to the oldest of you, if you are coming to this church and somehow you think that makes you better, then you really don't get Good Friday at all. If you get Jesus, it humbles you. And I want you to notice next in 53, 1 down to the end, I want you to notice the suffering obedience of Jesus. Look at verses 1 to 3. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of a dry ground. Watch again. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. All of a sudden now, the verses don't seem like a coronation day anymore, do they? I want you to realize this morning, Jesus wasn't just rejected. He lived rejection. He didn't just experience it. He didn't have moments of rejection. He was rejected, even from birth. Mary and Joseph had to flee from Bethlehem to Egypt just to keep him alive. In Nazareth, he was known as nothing more than a poor carpenter's son. 
when he was just about to turn 13. His parents misunderstood him. We know that his siblings didn't believe in him. He's accused and questioned and doubted and demanded of. Even when you read about him in his ministry, the woman at the well in John 4 didn't know that it was Jesus she was speaking to or the Messiah. Even John the Baptist, his cousin and the forerunner of the Messiah when he's in prison in Matthew 11, sends his disciples because John doesn't know for sure if Jesus is the Messiah. And when he comes to the end of his life after 33 short years, on a good Friday, there's no one. Judas has betrayed him. Peter's denied him. The other ten have fleed. Jesus didn't even try to be impressive. He doesn't respect false appearances the way we do. Again, he wasn't worried about being on the cover of magazines. He didn't care if he knew the latest dance on TikTok. Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, like a root out of dry ground. That sounds appealing, doesn't it? When was the last time you took note of a root out of a dry ground? But why did Jesus sink this low? You see, he had to become like us for us to be able to become like him. But if we'd been there, we'd have despised and rejected him too. Jesus lived a life of rejection so that he could offer you and I a life of acceptance. We've all experienced rejection. Every one of you in this room, every one of you online have felt the sting and the hurt of betrayal and rejection, but you've never lived it. But imagine being rejected by God. In Matthew chapter 7, at the end of a Sermon on the Mount, Jesus would say, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, but then I'm going to say, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. So don't pass up this Good Friday. Be like the ones, those servants with the talents later on in Matthew who obey and trust Jesus. And he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Because look at our passage. He has not only lived a life of rejection so you and I can be accepted. Jesus would be and was our sin bearer. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. I want you to realize Isaiah writes this 700 years before Jesus would come and die. And yet it would almost seem like he's writing it as if he was present because Isaiah felt like he was. I don't know how many of you are art lovers, but the famous art uh, painter Rembrandt, one of his most famous paintings is titled The Raising of the Cross. But it's famous because of what Rembrandt did with the painting. If you get a chance, go home and Google it. Because what shocked everybody and everybody missed for years is Rembrandt painted himself into the scene. He is one of the people there at the cross. This is what he did. He identified, he realized, even as he painted this cross scene, he realized, I was there. I was one of the ones yelling, crucify him. And I want you to know, young people to old people online here, every one of us, had we been in Jerusalem that day, would have been one going, crucify him, this man of sorrows. Is that because Jesus is taking our sorrow? He's taking your pain, your regrets, your doubts, your denials, your betrayals, your broken promises, your messes, your junk. Jesus substituted himself for us at the cross. God has done what we have no right to do. God has shifted the blame on Jesus Christ as he died for guilty people. God pointed the finger. He laid on Jesus your iniquity, everybody's. By the way, that's what the very meaning of the word imputation means. Guilt has to be atoned for. Remember what in National Treasure? Hey, Ben, someone's always got to go to prison. Get in a car accident and find out if your insurance company doesn't form you very quickly. Someone's to blame. But how? 
How can guilt be forgiven? How can you be set free from your debts? How can a holy God confront sin and evil without diminishing his holiness? Because he loves you. So why don't you come to him if you're weary and heavy laden? If you're scared or tired. I find, I don't know about you, but I look into the faces of some of the young people here. and I don't know if they'd ever be honest or feel safe enough to tell you, but I remember what it was like to absolutely just feel exhausted trying to figure out this stuff. And now I'm almost 50. And I'm looking at some of you. Actually, Paul joined me today in the 49 Club. And it's still exhausting to try and be religious. Do you know why I'm a Christian? Do you know why I'm a pastor? Because I discovered that God loves me. And I don't have to act anymore. And I don't have to pretend. I'm a weak messed up person with a pile of regrets. And Jesus says, I died for you because I love you. And because he does that, God, a holy, holy, holy God, looks down and says, Stephen, you're my son. You're my daughter. The blood of Jesus is flowing onto sinners of all kinds, taking from them their guilt, their shame, their loss, their tears and despair. Jesus is saying to you right now, I don't want you to bear this burden any moment longer. Let my chastisement be enough. Look at it. He died innocent so that you and I could be declared innocent. That's verses 7 to 9. <laughs> Look at what it says. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. I know and will not be put to shame. That's the heart and mind of Jesus. I want you to think for a moment about the wounds of Christ. These wounds he accepted willingly. Oh, when you look at all the different paintings now, we sanitize Easter, don't we? We have Jesus and we have his wounds, but you don't really see them very much. Right? There's a little, little trickle of blood. Even we put little, a little loincloth on them now because we want to we clean them up. But no, Jesus was despised and rejected, crushed. Do you think that the Roman soldiers, when they hit him in the face and they planted that crown of thorns on his head, that it wasn't devastatingly hurtful and painful? It ruined him. Do you realize that most victims that got a Roman 39 lashes with a cat of nine tails didn't live through the experience. And here's Jesus, marred beyond human likeness. And what does verse 7 tell us? He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And what's the point? The point is that his death was not a surrender to weakness, but it was an exercise of deliberate control. Jesus wasn't dragged to be whipped. He walked there. And I don't think those Roman soldiers ever whipped a person before or after like when they encountered Jesus. Because he didn't do it unwillingly, he did it willingly. And Jesus suffers and dies. But Isaiah 53 verses 10 to 12 says this is not the end. Because you see, if Jesus simply died and went into a grave, then this would be bad Friday. This would be black Friday. But instead, this is good Friday. Because we know there's an empty tomb that proves that Jesus' death meant something. So you see the reward of Jesus. He was crushed but victorious. And why? So that you can be confronted but given hope. God rose Jesus from the dead. The death of Jesus wasn't the plot of jealous, hypocritical religious leaders. It was the plan of God all along. Jesus willingly suffers for you the penal wrath of God. And that was the plan all along. The church is his inheritance. You and I are gifts from God to Jesus. And I want you to see this. Here is love. 
vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood, when the Prince of Life, our ransom, shed for us His precious blood. Who His love will not remember? Who can cease to sing His praise? He can never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. Do you realize here we are in 2021? In a world that uses largely Jesus' name as a punchline or a curse word. And yet on this day, in the midst of a global pandemic, almost all the planet stops in some way to remember over 2,000 years ago, someone named Jesus died and rose again. And no matter how hard the world tries, they cannot forget him. So what are you and I supposed to learn from this? What are you supposed to take out of all of this? This terrible Friday has been called Good Friday. Why? Because it led to the resurrection of Jesus and his victory over death and sin. It's a celebration of Easter, the very pinnacle of Christian celebrations. And so Christians and churches and friends and visitors, the death of Jesus on the cross is the only way you can be freed from your sin and given eternal life. Because really it is God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. I'm going to quote Ray Ortland again. He says, the cross isn't a dreamy religious ideal. The cross is power. It's working. The one who descended to unimaginable depth is now enjoying the spoils of complete victory. He's actively saving guilty people. Here's the question. Will you be one of them? So I began this sermon by asking, how can God love us? Now I want to put it to you this. Who else could love you like this? The answer to how can God love us is Jesus Christ. Now my question for you is, who else would give himself for you like Jesus? No one will love you like Jesus will. And there's only two responses for every one of you in this room and every one of you online. One can be, I don't believe it. I refuse to believe it. It's too good to be true. It's a fantasy. No, it it can't be. And you don't realize how many of you realize, live this way. This is why I'm so passionate about kids and teenagers that have been raised in church. Joan Baez, a lady famous for singing old gospel music. You remember that old hymn, Oh Happy Day? Oh Happy Day, Oh Happy Day, right? When Jesus washed my sins away. She was once on television singing this hymn, and they forgot to turn the mic off. And as she finished singing, Oh, Happy Day, and everybody was clapping, she walks away and the mic picks her up saying, If only it were that easy. Here she was, singing about a happy day. But she didn't believe it. Isaiah 52 and 53 doesn't think that way. Jesus suffers so you can have a happy day. So don't, don't try to earn your way to God. Don't try to find peace with your strength. God can't and he won't accept your heroism. He simply points to Jesus and it says, accept him and I will accept you. So the other response is for you to stand up and yell out, I believe the gospel. Jesus is my scapegoat. If you're a believer and you want to know refreshment, take your sins to Christ every day. Take your family, your friends, your loved ones, your marriage, your kids, your life, your job, everything. Bring it to him and say, Lord, here it is. You took it. You paid for it all. Charles Simeon, the Anglican pastor, is my favorite reformer. He writes this. He said, one Passion Week, I was reading Bishop Wilson on the Lord's Supper. And I met with an expression to this effect, that the Jews knew what they did when they transferred their sin to the head of their offering. And the thought came into my mind. What? I can can give all my guilt to somebody else? Has God provided an offering for me that I can lay all of my sins on his head? 
And then he writes in his journal, then if that's true, God willing, I will not bear them on my own soul one moment longer. And for the rest of my life, I will seek to lay my sins on the sacred head of Jesus. And after he wrote that, God used him for eight months to see almost a quarter of a million people come to Christ. All because he decided to not just go, well, I know the Sunday school answer to Easter. But after this service, he was going to walk out that door and go, I am going to actively live knowing that all of my guilt, I can just give it to Jesus. What would happen to you if you trusted that today? And if you can come back and join us on Sunday, I know many of you can't come back because we've got to have a different crew of you on Sunday. But if you tune in online, my sermon on Sunday is how to live Easter every day. And this is how you do it. So, will you trust it? Or will you go on playing church? Jesus says, I suffered for you. The victorious sufferings of a victorious Savior. Let's pray. Oh, Father God. If there was ever a moment in my life. Where I have been desperate for you. To work in me and those that I love that I look upon in this room. And those, so many, that are watching online. That you would stir us to understand what the significance of Good Friday is. That we would stop playing church. That we would stop being religious. And that men and women would stop being scared and angry and bitter and afraid. That young people would be brave to step out from the shadows of their parents and the religion or the denomination they've been brought up in and say, do do I know Christ? Do I believe this? Who do I trust? Where do I find meaning and value? Who gives me purpose? Who defines me? I pray that you'd give marriages and couples the courage and the freedom to go, "I, I don't I don't have to be defensive all the time. I don't have to make excuses anymore. Oh God, help us to look upon the suffering Savior and see the victory of the gospel, the scandal, the greatest miracle that God justifies the ungodly and gives us hope to be accepted Sons and daughters of God. In Jesus' name, amen.